they need discipleship. Because we don't have enough of the Holy Spirit to be independent. I've preached whole teachings. I've taught whole messages on Ephesians 4. Brother Dan and I have together. Amen. We just don't have enough of the Holy Spirit to be independent. God didn't give us the full portion. He gave us the first picking, the first fruits. God didn't give us the full promise. He gave us a pledge, which is a little deposit, a guarantee of what's coming. And so in answer to the smallness of our individual portion, we are put in a body where we get to share each other's portions and we become more than the sum of our parts. That's why we need discipleship. We don't have enough of God's Spirit to be independently knowledgeable, wise, loving, or powerful and live the life that God's called us to live. We got enough of the Spirit to share it and to let it join us to the body. But we don't have enough of the Spirit to be independently powerful, independently loving, independently knowledgeable, independently wise. We only have enough to get into that secret place of the Most High, that special project and design that we call the body of Christ. And so because we have received according to the measure of Christ's gift, for this reason, it says, when he ascended on high, he built a church. He gave gifts unto men and set us up according to his design. So the body plays the role of supplementing what we didn't get in our individual relationship with Jesus by ourselves. What do we get from Jesus but grace, right? So why does Paul call himself a steward of God's grace? Because we don't get it all directly from Jesus. We get it from Jesus through the Spirit. We get it from Jesus through the inspired Word. And we get it from Jesus through the many-membered body that he has put upon the earth. And so it says in 1 Peter 4.10 that we receive the grace of God in its... I can't hear you. In its what? Various forms. God's grace doesn't have one form. And if we shrink our life down to only one form through which we will receive the grace of God, we're like a spoiled child who will only eat one kind of baby food and never grow in regard to righteousness and salvation. We can't pick the form. We've got to embrace the whole body and say, I'll take the various forms. Are you a picky eater? You better not be a picky eater when it comes to salvation and grace because you're not going to make it. You need everything that God can give you because his grace is not abundant and it's not excessive. He tells Paul his grace is sufficient. You're going to stay hungry. You're going to stay needy. You're never going to repent to a place where you don't need the body of Christ. You're never going to get the Holy Ghost to a place where you don't need the body of Christ. You're never going to get a vision or a revelation or an answer or even enough fruit in your life to where you're ever going to be able to say, Whew, I am complete in him. You're going to say, we are complete in him. We have the mind of Christ. Don't let independence and, 
and the pursuit of personal perfection hijack God's destination for your life because his destination is Zion. It's the church. It's the body. You're supposed to be one stone in a big house, not one big house finally getting finished. Thank you, Jesus. And that discipleship that comes into our life teaches us how to love. It gives us the wisdom of God. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to deny worldly pleasures, to live sensibly and godly in this present age. That's what he's saying. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches. But do you know the word there is not didacto. It's not, it's, it's not uh, the kind of teaching that is an instruction in a concept. The word that he's using is paideo. And it means the training of discipleship. So Titus 2 and 11 should read, the grace of God that brings salvation is discipling us. But then we got a problem because we're told that this discipleship is painful, never pleasant, and nobody is expected to like it. (laughs) And so we ask a question, what could make us endure the discipleship. What does training and discipleship do? The discipleship is, is more analogous to the word training than it is to the word teaching. And what does training do? It turns a weakling into a soldier. Training empowers you to exceed your limitations, to become more than what you were at the start. We see training in various forms, right? Is there any athlete who does not undergo training? (laughs) Why does he hold on? Well, he's got a prize in mind, doesn't he? Is there any soldier who does not undergo training? Paul warns us against the civilian mindset that loses the right attitude toward hardship. That's his whole message in the book of Hebrews, and I do think he wrote it. So he says, endure hardship with us. He tells Timothy, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. He said, treat these things that you're going through as God training you. And if it's training, then it's empowering. And if it's empowering, then it's freedom. (laughs) Freedom to be more than what you are. Freedom to be different. Freedom to be no longer the slave of fear or lies, temptations or addictions. Amen. A child doesn't learn to walk without training. A child doesn't learn to talk without training. They don't wake up one day and and have a school lesson and go from being a, a floppy baby in an infant seat to an athlete the next day because they were trained, they were educated that that's what's needed. No, they have to get up and they have to stumble and they have to fall and you can pad all the furniture in the living room and you're never going to preclude the tears and the, the stumbles and the trips and the falls and the skinned knees and the banged up this and there. You're never going to preclude it. But we say, it's okay. We wince. We hurt with them, but we say, keep coming. We get down there on our knees and we say, come to daddy, come to, that's it, that's it. It's dangerous, but we want it. 
Because we want them to transcend, to escape the limitations of their native state. And that's what God does through discipleship. It's going to freak you out. It's going to stub your toe. It's going to skin your knee. It's going to give you an egg on the head. But come on, come on, come on. You can be more than this. This isn't what God called you to be. Look in his word. Let your heart believe that you're not supposed to be an infant in an infant seat with a big bottle growing bigger all the time to accommodate your growth that does not correspond to training, to discipleship. That's not what he wants. So we ask, so if our discipleship comes through the body, that's grace coming through the body, and it's painful, it's difficult, it's agonizing, what empowers us to embrace it? Well, a vision of where God's taking us, a thirst to be free and different than what we are, and a trust in the trainer. And you say, well, what is necessary for trust? And, and I would say distrust. Distrust is necessary for trust. People act like they don't trust because of this and because of that. But the only abiding reason a Christian cannot trust who has encountered God and even the way we have met with him this morning, supernatural words, answering questions, grace through worship, the presence of God among us, the only reason we would not trust him is if we trust our self. So the catalyst for trust is the collapse of trust in self. Fear does not prevent us from trusting. Only someone who has never had children would think that. Pulled up to our house last night. Rebecca and I were sitting in the car speaking with each other and we let the kids go on in ahead of us and she told Connie, take the baby and, and, and uh, get her ready for her bath and gave all the kids instructions about how they were going to bathe that night and, and uh, they all got inside the house and we're still sitting in the car and all of a sudden the kitchen door swings open and doesn't shut behind anybody and the two-year-old comes running like an ostrich. I mean, just boom, 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 boom. Mommy, hold you, mommy, hold you. What do we immediately know has happened? Well, we would say, well, clearly nothing has scared her or made her fearful or else she would not be trusting. No. On the contrary, we say, clearly she has met with something that has scared the living daylights out of her and she is running to the place of safety. She's running to her parent. And so I don't buy it. I think it's a bold-faced lie that we recite to ourselves that our distrust is rooted in our fear or our victimhood. I don't buy it. I have seen people more afraid. I have seen people more victimized. And I don't buy it. I believe that our distrust is always rooted in our trust of self. So... How do we embrace the hardship of discipline? We learn to trust. How do we learn to trust? We learn to distrust the carnal nature. We learn to recognize that is the devil moving through my fears and my pride. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. 
We learn to question ourselves. You say, question authority, yes. And the authority you should question is yourself. But these are on the negative side. Let's look closely and let's look further at what is needed to start this journey. I want to submit to you that there are two kinds of acceptance that we need in our lives. The acceptance of a child and the acceptance of a son. Let me rephrase that. We need from our Heavenly Father two kinds of acceptance. The acceptance as His child and then the approval as His son. And those are distinct from each other. Let me try to bear this out. We know that Jesus used the term Father to refer to God more than any other label. I believe by an order of magnitude, he calls God Father. Most scholars will agree that he is using the Aramaic Abba that is translated into the Greek as pater. And that Abba, they say, is not merely a term of lordship or of origins, but it is a term of affection, of intimacy. It's when, when the little kids come to my brother Nathaniel and call him Abba, that's less like our word for father and more like our word for daddy. Brother Tzafir, do you agree with that? He says, correct. So it's kind of like saying, our daddy who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this is important. It shows the attitude that Jesus has toward God. And, and then further, in the seminal moments when God speaks to Jesus from heaven, he seems to say the same thing, at least on multiple occasions. Notably at his baptism and at the transfiguration, what does the Father say? If, if we were to put it in, in simple talk, we would say that the Father says, that's my boy. A declaration of ownership. And we would say that he would follow up with, and I am happy with him. This is my much-loved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So we, we see in this interaction that God is recognizing him before others, that God is owning him as his son, and that God is saying that he is happy with his life, with his behavior, with who he is. Now I believe that we cannot move into the second phase of God's affirmation of our sonship until we accept the first phase of God's affirmation of us as his child. Is this, is this biblical that there would be these two categories of acceptance? I would submit that the interactions between Jesus and the Father would make affirmation and acceptance absolutely at the heart of the father-son relationship. Would you agree with that? And I would say that 
in looking at the father's son, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the whole concept of repentance, this is getting down, what does this affirmation look like? And I've already said, one is the affirmation of us as his child, and the other is our confirmation of us as his son. And I want to delve into that a little bit more. And I want something to turn over in our hearts where we can know how to father better, and we can know how to be sons better. That's my whole prayer here. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. So, so let's look at the affirmation of us, God's affirmation of us as his child. I am my father's child. What is required for us to be our father's child? One thing, us to be born. That's all we have to be, is born. You don't walk in to see your baby lying in a bassinet that is three days old and say, let's see, is he an obedient son? Mm, you're still not buttoning that shirt the way I've shown you. I mean, there is absolutely no requirement whatsoever. There are no conditions. You might even say it's an unconditional love because he's a baby, because he's an infant, and he's not capable of anything more than what, he, what he's giving. He is, he is given love. I mean, you regale him with affection, right? You hold him or her. You soothe them. You kiss them. You tell them how perfect they are while drool is spewing out the corner of their mouth, and you pretend that when they go, ah, 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 that they said avocado. And, <laughs> and when the muscles in their face twitch, whether in pain or in something else, you say, he smiled at me, he smiled at me. You basically just impute to this child the best positive motives, virtues, qualities imaginable, and you have no requirements on them whatsoever. And that's all it takes to be embraced as God's child. We just got to be born. Amen. And I would say that in my experience of my own father, and I believe my family would bear this out, nobody ever regaled us with more affirmation as his children. Oh, with pet names, with songs that he made up, with teasing, with just always telling us how much we meant to him just as his child. And I would say that was given to all of us. And he felt that way of all of us. When my brothers were wayward, when they were not living for God, that love didn't go away. <laughs> it was always there. Or when they were, were back and they were just barely born and not yet all that fruitful, he would shower that kind of affection on all of us, grandkids, kids. And that's, the, that's kind of the unconditional acceptance that you're my child and your mere existence is all that is needed to receive that affirmation and acceptance. But that's not all we need. That's all we need as children, but it is a sign of maturation that at some point, in a kind of funny way, that's not enough. It doesn't mean we're not grateful for that. 
You know, my dad would say to me, son, I know you're this and you're that and you're this, and he, but you're always going to be my sweet boy. And it didn't embarrass me. I, I, I appreciated that. But there was a point in my life where that wasn't enough, where I sensed that God had called me for a purpose, that I had a mission, a destiny, a place of responsibility. And I began to want a different kind of affirmation. And this was pivoting from the affirmation of his, as his child to the affirmation as his son. And just for the sake of conversation, I'm drawing that distinction. I know the language doesn't necessarily bear that out, but you get the point. This takes us to the, the word that Paul uses for adoption. You might be interested to know how completely different it is from our use of the word adoption. Our use of the word adoption typically refers to a baby or a young child being grafted in as a baby or a young child into a new family. That's what that means. That's not how Paul used it. Paul used it as a child not leaving the family, but changing his role in the family. So adoption literally means in the Greek, son placing. And it did not refer that you're an orphan, but now I'm going to make you part of, I'm going to make you my kid. It referred to, you've been my kid all along, but now I'm going to give you your place of responsibility and inheritance. So when we speak of finding our place, <laughs> probably won't find that jargon in just any church, but it's very endemic to this culture. And it comes from Brother Blair's teaching on adoption. Amen? In, in Galatians 4 and 6, I believe it is, Paul talks about the heir, as long as he remains a child, is no different from a slave. Though, by right, by inheritance, he's lord of the whole estate. Well, what does he mean here? He's saying... You, you have this thing coming, but as long as you're a child, you're just like one of the servants in the house. You don't have any more power, any more anything than a servant, than a slave. Though by right, by inheritance, you be lord of the whole estate. This, this idea of son placing and adoption, it doesn't start in the New Testament. It goes all the way back. This was always done by the father. The father would set a son in his place. And notice what I'm doing, just not even realizing it. You, you notice what I'm doing here? I'm using my right hand to describe the father setting the son in place. Why am I doing that? Because historically, this adoption, which means putting you in your place, was always done through the laying on of hands and a prayer and a declaration and an acknowledgement. This is the second kind of confirmation. This is the second kind of acceptance that as adults we need even more than the first. The problem is, is 
Brothers and sisters, we come from broken backgrounds. I'm just going to put an an earmark on, on my thoughts here regarding this adoption. I'm going to come back to this, but let's just talk about the hurdle a little bit. You can look at me and you can correctly say, you had a father who never abused you, who never deceived you, who never failed you in relationship. And I I understand how you can trust. And I will readily acknowledge that it was that I had an easier path. And I don't blame you. I don't judge you. I don't look down on you that you have a struggle that I didn't have. Except I did have it in another way. Because even in my situation or the stories of the Bible, we see that the real resistance to the fatherhood of God is the fatherhood of self, is the autonomy, is the authority of self. And so we can't really find a corollary in the Bible where we say, he never found the fatherhood of God because of the way he was raised, whereas he did because of the way he was raised. If anything, it's almost reverse. And we see the same thing in our first generation. My dad, whatever fatherhood he had was the opposite of supporting the concept. It was destructive from the time he was four years old. Atrocity, a shocking breakdowns in example, in love, in everything. And then his father kills himself. You know, Brother Howard had no father growing up. Brother Tzafrir was, was put in, a, in, a, in an institution outside of a normal family environment. Look around you and you're going to see fatherlessness everywhere you look. Amen. But he is a father to the fatherless. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. But I do look and I say, Brothers and sisters, let's be honest about what's missing and let's be intentional about crossing those bridges. So when you come into the kingdom of God, you have not had the frame already established in your mind that connects discipleship or discipline with love. Because outside of, of the love of Jesus, correction it feels like rejection, or it is rejection. Rebuke is scorn. So all you want to do is not be rejected. All you want to do is not be corrected because it feels like rejection. And I admit that that framework doesn't exist in your mind that connects those two, in some of our minds. But we've got to get there. We've got to acknowledge that we are consigning ourselves to permanent stagnation unless we get there. And how are we going to get there? By persuasion? Are you going to put your life on ice and, and wait it out until you can decide in your 80s that it was worth taking the risk? 
No, God has got to supernaturally speak to your heart through the scripture, through the voice of the body, through the movement of his spirit in prayer. And he's got to tell you, you've got to hear the voice of your teacher tapping you on the shoulder, speaking to you, saying, this is the way. Walk in it. This is my love. This is my body. It's, it's a church of imperfect people, but it's going to save you from the church of one imperfect person, yourself. And you're going to have a thousand reasons to go and say, well, because of this and because of that. And you're just lying to yourself. But I'm not saying it's not a temptation that some of us haven't battled. I admit it is. You know, I mean... Shem and Japheth could have said, look at my father, Noah. I don't know if I can trust him. Look what's happened. And the whole congregation of Israel could have said, look at Aaron. He's built two golden calves. How can we ever follow him? And we could pull out whole books of the Bible from Solomon and David for their failures. And the church could have said, why would we ever follow Peter? Why would we ever trust Peter? Because... This isn't about learning to trust people. This is about learning to recognize the voice of our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be his name. And saying, yes, it's through an imperfect person, but God, I'll take whatever you're given because it's you that I ultimately trust. Jesus entrusted himself to no man, and you shouldn't entrust yourself to the flesh either. But when you know that God has become greater and stronger and louder than all the failings in the display of his love, in the revelation of his grace, in the clarity of his truth, in the nearness of his presence, don't hide behind your excuses. You can trust him. And you can even trust his body. I didn't say you can trust the flesh. I said you can trust the body of Christ. What did I just say? You can trust the body of the anointed one. Amen. You say, but I've been led astray. Was that anointing that led you astray? If it was, never trust the anointing again. Amen. But if you were led astray by your own desires, like the apostle James says, then say, God, tune my heart to your voice. Tune my heart to sing your praise. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. And God's speaking to us that we can't skip to the confirmation of sonship until we go through the embrace of God's love for those born as children into his family. But let it speak to you too. Amen. Amen. Was there ever a time when Jesus wanted to love someone, felt love for someone, reached in love for someone, and yet they walked away unloved? Was there ever a time? Was there ever a time when the Bible tells us that he was sad because he loved him? And yet that love stayed bottled up inside. 
Because we are commanded not to love in word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. We are not allowed to love outside of the truth of God. That's like burning a fire outside of the stove that keeps it safe in the house. Amen. So Paul rebukes the Corinthians for what they thought was love. He said, your boasting is not good. You're tolerating something, and you think you're all loving, but you're destroying this person's soul, and you're destroying the church by letting a little leaven leaven the whole lump. So we are not allowed to love on our terms. That's sin. We are only allowed to love in deed and in truth. So Jesus spoke the truth to the rich young ruler. I don't know if they had history. I don't know if he'd ever met him. But how many people in the Bible does it say because he loved him? You'll, you'll, you'll count only a handful. Does it comment specifically that Jesus loved him? Amen. And the, the word there when it says he was sad, it can be translated he was angry. Both of the rich young ruler and of Jesus. You think it's possible that Jesus could have been angry? I love that guy. I'm so upset about what you're doing with your life. God has an answer for you, but you want it on your terms. You're afraid to trust, but you're totally trusting of yourself. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. God free us from the trust in ourselves. Hallelujah. So we want to love. We want to be loved. We want, we want to love God's children on the first level of acceptance. And we want to love God's sons and daughters on the second level of acceptance. We want that for ourselves. We want it for God's people. But this is a two-way street. You have got to conform yourself to the instruction, to the command to the, to the direction that God is giving through Jesus. Amen. Go and sell everything you have. Was that, a, was that a rubric that applied to all Christians everywhere? I mean, that man could have flipped open his Bible and said, this is not what the Lord requires. No, but it was God's love speaking in a manner tailored to his need, and it would have given him victory. And what he lacked was faith. What he lacked was trust. That's what he lacked. And there was this blockage that was taking it, that was occupying, that was stealing that trust. Your possessions can steal that trust. Amen. Your gifts from God can steal that trust. Any number of things, your, your assessments, your clear understanding and evaluation of things can steal that trust. Anything that you're trusting besides God is stealing that trust. And that was what was missing in his life. He felt like eternity is not for me. Eternal life is eluding me. I'm doing what I know to do, but I don't have this. He didn't have trust. He didn't have faith. And God gave him an opportunity to step into a relationship of trust. And he showed him what the barrier was. He was trusting in himself, in his riches. 
So adoption is a decision of the father. The father decides when adoption is ready. You remember the adoption that I'm talking about, though, right? It's son placing. We see this throughout the whole Bible. We see this in the story of Israel, Jacob, with his grandsons. Remember? He crossed his hands. Oh, no, don't do that. What is happening here? This is adoption. That's what's happening. He's not, he's not bringing in a new kid to the family. That's wonderful. God does that, too. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you've been a kid, but it's time to stop being a kid and find your place. Thank you, Jesus. And so I said about the first kind of acceptance that it's conditionless. What about the second? What about the second kind of acceptance? Is it conditionless? Is that what the Bible teaches us? Anybody, somebody, is it conditionless? No, it is not. No, it is not. Because it is putting you in a constituted place of responsibility. And that's often on an, on an increasing level that's changing with time. A steward must prove himself trustworthy. God's workmen must study to show himself approved. So you, you say, Brother Austin, are you teaching works? Yes, I sure am, unabashedly, from Scripture. Amen. What kind of works? The exploits of the flesh? No. What you can do without God? No. I'm teaching that we've got to see that God is at work through you by his grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, was not without effect, for I worked harder than them all, but it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. And that's got to be there. There's got to be that evidence, that confirmation but we've got to build the bridge of childlike acceptance first before we're going to cross that biggie of sonship acceptance. Amen. How do I do that? How do I make myself beloved? What elicits God's love? Amen. Humility. Humility is what elicits God's love. I wish I could spend a whole message just on that statement. But you'll think about it. God will bring the scriptures to your mind. Humility is what elicits God's love. Pride shows your sufficiency apart from love. Humility is not making demands like a petulant, tyrannical, infantis tyrantis. That's not humility. Humility is obedience and trust and dependence in a godly way dependence on him do you feel like God's showing you something that you haven't seen before do you feel like this is helpful okay can I wrap it up with, a, with an example Lord help me thank you Jesus I'm just going to take a big old risk and I'm closing my notes hallelujah one of the most clear illustrations or some of the most clear illustrations in the Bible depicting fatherhood and sonship. I find in the stories, and my dad taught this my whole life, in the stories of Elijah and Elisha. But I'm going to give you two other stories that I think reveal it just as much. Okay? And that is the story of Gehazi and Joash. 
king of Israel. Amen? So in the story of Elijah and Elisha, I'm just going to gloss over it. It's marked by two things on the part of Elijah and three things on the part of Elisha. What are the two things that seem to mark Elijah's interaction with Elisha? I would say the first thing is that Elijah does not exert any external pressure. And I would say that is notable, remarkable throughout this whole journey. I'll just give you a couple images. When he puts his cloak over Elisha, it's almost as if Elijah is reluctant to believe that this is really the man. So he puts his cloak over him, and Elisha responds with effusive commitment. Let me go do this, and I'll, I'll be right there. And Elijah says, go back, for what have I done to you? And there seems to be this utter unwillingness to kind of gerrymander or manhandle or kind of fleshly guide Elisha into his position. The second thing is he makes him no promises of glory or of a place. He does not tell him, God told me you'd be the next prophet. Never said. And he does not say, hey, God, if you'll stick with me, you're going to get a double portion. That doesn't even come until the very end. All of the perseverance comes before that promise is even on the table. So the two things that mark Elijah is there's no external coercion and there's no appeal to his vanity. Does that make sense? He's not triggering the wrong thing. The three things that mark Elisha are initiative, responsibility, and perseverance. I don't think there's any more vivid depiction of fatherhood and sonship in the whole Bible. Initiative, responsibility, and perseverance. So he's constantly doing things that he doesn't have to do. It's reminiscent of Jesus' words in Luke when he says that the unprofitable servant is the one who does only what he has to do. And God says you're a worthless and unprofitable servant. That's not, he's not trying to prove that he did what he was told. He is instead trying to embody the burden and the heart of his master to become an authentic expression of his master's ministry in the world. So, initiative. And we see this in his determination to follow him, in his slaying of the oxen, making the sacrifice. You know, as Elijah becomes, as he is nearing his departure, you know, there are these three places where he tells him to stay back. Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, and the Jordan. At Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, and the Jordan, the older prophet tells the other, this is good enough. And we think, well, maybe he was manipulating him. Maybe this was reverse psychology. I'd rather not think that. I'd rather think that he was honestly trying to see 
the level of gifting, the level of commitment inside of Elisha. And so four times he tells him, stay here. And four times, just as at the beginning, the younger prophet shows initiative. And he shows the ability to respond. He shows responsibility. He doesn't have to have everything spelled out because he's not conforming to a school of discipleship. His heart is receiving the burden of his master. This isn't a curriculum, God help us. This is a relationship. And there's perseverance. He doesn't even get the promise that you're going to receive a double portion until the very end. But he's already persevered and he just keeps doing it all the way. Now, let me contrast that. Of course, there's the contrast with Gehazi, who is a self-seeking man. He would have been the third prophet in the lineup. But they didn't make it to their third generation, did they? Amen. And Gehazi, uh, he goes through the motions. Brother Tim reminded me this week that uh, when, the, when the boy is, is dead, the prophet tells his servant Gehazi to go. He tells him to take his rod and put it over the boy and do like this, and then the boy is going to live. And he does it, and it doesn't happen. But when Elisha moves into the situation, he's not operating under formulas. He's not operating under, aren't we supposed to pray like this? Or, he throws himself on the child and stretches himself out. <laughs> and you see this willingness to go to the mat, to do whatever is needed, to expand, to stretch himself out in love. And it's a, it's a stark contrast between his dutiful, obedient servant and the heart of the master. You following me here? Thank you, Jesus. And so the same thing we see um, in, in the way he thinks better of his master's decisions. You know, he's, we've got this whole school of the prophets and they were apparently running short on funds and Naaman comes and he's probably the servant that Elisha sends out to speak to Naaman about dipping in the Jordan. In all likelihood, I don't, I don't see how it could be else otherwise. But then, you know, he, he's listening and he's already sitting in judgment over his master. And so it's like, uh, <clears throat> you know, and his master says, did not my heart go with you when you chased the man and overtook his chariot? Amen. And he, he has leprosy. And his claim to fame from that point on is that all he can do is tell stories about a ministry he was flunked out of. It's pretty, pretty grim, honestly. We know that Elisha's perseverance happened in the final days of Elijah's life on earth. Isn't that right? But there's a parallel. When Elisha, the Bible says, becomes sick with the sickness by which he was to die, he goes on a journey just like his master did. Gehazi's already washed out and is out of the picture covered in leprosy. But now he goes to Joash, Jehoash or Joash the king. And this guy's already been used of God in a pretty special way. This guy's not just any old fuddy-dud. There's something to him. But Elisha goes down to Joash and we're going to see a parallel in the way he interacts with this guy. 
compared to how Elijah interacted with him. And we're going to see, do we see initiative, responsibility, and perseverance? So Elisha goes down, and the first scene is unbelievable, really. There's nothing like it in the Bible. The prophet puts his hands over the hands of the, pro of the king, like a dad would with his son doing woodworking tools or something. I mean, you don't see that except with a kid and a dad. <laughs> and I know we talk about beating the arrows, and that's where we're going to go, but that, I don't think that had anything, any meaning to them outside of the relationship. What we need to see from this is the relationship. So he puts his, he puts his hands over the kings, and they shoot an arrow together under the initiative and covering, and, and, it, and he says, so shall your victory over your enemies be, in as far as it was covered by the prophet. And then something must have occurred to him about this, this child of a king because he takes the arrows and he hands it to the king. And in the English it says, strike the ground. But in the Hebrew, it's better translated, start striking the ground. And now the king doesn't have his hands over him. There's a freedom to see what is inside of him. The prophet doesn't have his hands over the king. There's a freedom to see what lives in the king. Is there perseverance? Is there initiative? What is there? Is there the ability to respond? The king takes the arrows and hits the ground three times and turns back to the man who told him, like, he's a good little boy. He did what he was told. And Elisha is seized with anguish because he confronts that he was not able to do for the following generation what Elijah did for him. And he says, so shall your, your victory over the enemies be partial because you only struck the ground three times. And he said, you should have done it seven or eight times. There was no particular number. That wasn't the point. It was the zeal of obedience. It was the feeling of anointing coming through an instruction from the fatherhood of God. Amen. It was the ability to find grace in submitting to another man's direction, but to find the grace and anointing of God in doing so. Thank you, Jesus. And what, what didn't happen is that confirmation as a son. Thank you, Jesus. God. Help us. Help us. Yes, we need the affirmation that we are God's child, but we also need the confirmation that we are a son. Brothers, I ministered to, to those of us who were struggling in ministry and leadership. I ministered a few weeks ago. It's supposed to be this hard. Do you remember that? And I want to tell you, some of you did not listen. You do not hear what I'm really saying, what God is trying to get through to your heart. You are infatuated with civilian affairs. You resent the war. You want the embrace that is appropriate for the child, but you don't want to persevere under trial and show yourself a workman who need not be ashamed. God has not called us to peace. He has called us to war. 
And if you resent the war, you're going to find an out. It may be this way or it may be that way. It may be insurrection or it may be cowardice. But we are in the grind. We are under pressure. Amen. But it's not to torment us. It's not to mock our weakness. It's because God sees a soldier. Whereas yet there's just been a child. God sees a son. Amen. Who can find his place. You feel cornered. You feel trapped. Thank you, Lord. You're trapped by some bad decisions. Maybe financial duress. Maybe some burned bridges. You feel trapped by demands that you cannot meet, questions you cannot answer, needs growing all around you. And you say, oh, let, let me just escape down into the valley. Life up here on the mountain with Abraham is so hard. Let me just get down here and pitch my tent in this easy place. If God is calling you onward, if he's calling you to a new place, go, go with God. But go because you're a son. Go because you're ready, because you've got the skins of a lion and a bear on the wall and you're saying, there's a cause in Israel and I'm ready to find my place. Don't go because you're a coward and you're trying to find a discharge from the war. The Bible says there is no discharge from this war. You find a premature discharge and all you found is the life of a turncoat coward. Amen. Don't be that. Don't accept that. Let something rise up inside of you and say, God, I want to be a pillar in the temple of my God who goes out no more. I want to find my place. I want to be dependent upon. I want to be relied upon. I want the hands of the body to put me in an abiding place of constituted responsibility. Thank you, Jesus. I want to be a son. Thank you, Jesus. And it's in that faithfulness that we can prove ourselves faithful as a son in God's house. God, help us. Amen. God, help your whole church. Help me. Help all of us. Help us to tear down all the barriers to trust, especially trust in myself, God. Amen. Help us to make a complete sacrifice. This world has taught us to be so afraid of responsibility, but there's no freedom except in responsibility. God, help us to take responsibility. Help us to admit that we have the ability to respond, that God is not asking something he cannot give us the grace to obey. He does not reap where he has not sown, but that if he's reaching for something from me, he will give me the grace to do it. Thank you, Jesus. I remember the story of an individual who died suddenly and by surprise. Nobody saw it coming. And uh, when she passed from this life, a young person, she said, look what my sin has done to me. And she leaned back and died. But a sister had had a dream. And in the dream, she saw this individual on a swampy battlefield and she was shedding the armor, she was shedding the weapons. She was getting free of the fight. And the next thing she knew, she was out of the fight. God, we're not here for ourselves. We're not here to have a good time. Amen. We're not here to have fun. We're just not here for us. We're here for Jesus.
We're here to vindicate the sacrifice he made on the cross. And in giving ourselves completely, we're going to forge relationships that the world knows nothing about. In making a complete sacrifice, we're going to know and attest and prove what God's good and acceptable and perfect will is. We're going to love like nobody's ever known love. Amen. We're going to trust God all the way to the end. We're going to have fullness of joy at his right hand and pleasures forevermore in his presence. But it's not about us. Amen. It's about him. Rise up, O oh men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of kings, to serve the King of kings. Church.